Amen, amen. So good evening, y'all. Uh, Kingdom Kim, saints of God, uh, and those who are not believers, particularly you, uh, those who are not believers, you are most welcome. Uh, I do hope that this time uh, together will help ground us theologically, uh, help us to think critically and empower us practically because the reality is that our people, when you hear me say our people, I'm talking about black folks, uh, our people are facing politically, sociologically and materially, they're existential. And if we do not have a theological framework or um, our, our anchor to understand our current experience, we will continue to be confounded. Um, and in order for us to go forward, I thought it necessary for us to actually go back. And when I say go back, I mean go way back into time. Um, and I want us to go actually go back to Genesis. Okay. In the meeting, oh, now if you joined us, just go ahead and mute. I'm glad that you're here. Just go ahead and mute. <laughs> so let's go. Let's go back to the beginning. Okay. So in the beginning, I'm, I'm setting a bit of the, uh, the context here. Okay. And if you're with me, I'd love for you to eat. You muted yourself. Okay. Can you hear me now? Okay. Sorry about that. Um, okay. So I'm saying, uh, so I want us to go back, go back to the beginning, go back into time. And as I'm setting this landscape, I want you to just use your imagination. Let that be your plane, um, uh, your mode of transportation uh, right now, as I just set that context. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. By the word of his mouth, God filled the seas and the earth with living creatures too numerous to count. By the word of his mouth, God filled the sky with birds and caused vegetation of every kind to sprout from the earth. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God planted a beautiful, verdant, and tranquil environment for both Adam and Eve to dwell in, known as the Garden of Eden. There in the garden, Adam and Eve enjoyed unmitigated fellowship and union with the one true God. They had everything they needed, and they lacked for nothing. Then God observed all that he created, and he said it was very good. So what happened? How exactly did we get here in a country rife with state-sanctioned violence where Black people are killed with impunity by the police? How did we get here? Jordan, you can hit the slide. How did we get here to a place where we see that Rakia Boyd was killed for talking loudly? How do we get here where Ayanna Stanley Jones, seven-year-old, was killed while sleeping? How do we get here where Sandra Bland was killed for failing to turn, uh, to turn on her turn signal? How do we get here where Amadou Diallo was killed trying to enter his own apartment with nothing but a wallet in his hand? How do we get here where Corey Jones was killed while having car trouble? And how do we get here that Tasha McKenna was killed while having a mental health 
episode. And how do we get here? When Alton Sterling was killed for selling CDs. And here, where Tamir Rice was killed while playing with a toy gun. Jonathan Crawford III was killed while shopping in a store aisle. And here, where Tanisha Anderson was killed while having a mental health episode. And here, where Tony McDade was recently killed while unarmed. Breonna Taylor, whom we are still fighting for, was killed in Louisville, Kentucky. An essential worker killed while sleeping, shot eight times. How do we get here? To Elijah McClain, who was killed while walking home, trying to get home and was killed by the police. And George Floyd, killed over a $20 bill. And lastly, Priscilla Slater, one you all probably haven't heard too much about, who was found dead in police custody. How did we get here? So I want us to sit with that for a moment and, and think about how do you feel after hearing the juxtaposition of the killings and the reason for it? Um, and think, does, does the mounting uh, weight of sorrow and grief and pain grip you? As I read their names and also the reasons why uh, they were killed, or did um, callousness and hard-heartedness um, begin to make its way into your heart? Where are you on that? Ask yourself these questions. And uh, how does it feel to know that this is only the tip of the iceberg? as 88 black people have been killed by the police thus far in 2020, 88. I only listed off 15 names there. This is a microcosm of what has been going on in this country for decades. And there's an old adage that says, reality bites, but where it concerns black citizens, the reality of white supremacy not only bites, it kills, it steals, and it destroys. So how did we get here? The fall is how we got here. So I want us to, let's go back to Eden because we got to figure out some things. We need to retrace our steps because uh, how do we go from there to where we, where we are currently at? Um, so we need to understand some things about Eden. Eden was a garden temple where God dwelled with Adam and Eve, God walked with them, God communed with them, God made Adam and Eve in his image and likeness. They were God's representatives on earth. God gave them dominion over everything that he made. He charged them with guarding and keeping Eden. God told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers. So in this pre-fall context, Adam and Eve were in a state of innocency, which means a couple of things. It means that they were able not to sin, right? They, did not, they were not sinful at this point, and they could actually obey God, but they could also choose to sin against God. Okay, so now after hearing me read the names of black people killed by the police, you might be tempted to say, well, I wish we could go back to the Garden of Eden. And with the way 2020 is set up, I mean, Eden is sounding really good right about now. Uh, but we do have to understand this. Although Eden was very good, it was actually not perfect. 
because it had not reached its eschatological, it hadn't reached its ultimate goal, which was eschatological fulfillment. So when I talk about, when you hear me say eschatological, uh, eschatology, I'm talking about end times, the end, what's going to happen when Christ returns. So they were not there yet. You know, they had, it, Eden was, um, was not yet at its, full, at, at its fullness, actually. So what was it that kept Eden from being perfect, right? That's the question. Uh, you can turn with me to Genesis 2, 9, verses 16 to 17. And then we're going to also look at Genesis 3, 1. So I probably should have told you, you can get your Bibles app, <laughs> get your Bible app or your Bible out and uh, feel free to take notes, okay? Because I'm not a big, I don't do a lot of slides. Um, okay, so Genesis 2, 9, verses, and then we're going to go to verses 16 and 17, and then Genesis 3, 1. So Genesis 2, 9 reads, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verses 16 and 17, God commands Adam, saying, you may surely eat of the tree of every garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we have two trees, one that will confer life and the other that will confer death. In Genesis 3.1, we learn that there is something else in the garden that keeps it from being perfect. And the scripture says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. From these scriptures, there are three features, three features in the garden that indicate that Eden was not the highest goal for humanity. The first is this, the tree of life, um, it symbolized an escalation of the life that would have been given to Adam and Eve had they eaten of the tree of life, which would have moved them from the estate of innocency to the estate of glory. Glory is the goal for us, y'all. Uh, they would have advanced beyond life in Eden, having received uh, eternal life, and they would have been confirmed in righteousness and holiness. The second feature in the garden uh, that, we, that we know lets us know that Eden wasn't quite perfect is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the probation tree, meaning that while in the garden, Adam and Eve were tested temporarily. Adam and Eve, they lived under the threat of death. That is what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolized. Death was a consequence for disobedience. And the third feature uh, that lets us know that Eden wasn't quite perfect is the serpent's presence, uh, which defiles the garden temple of Eden, tempting Adam and Eve to sin against God. So remember, God gave Adam and Eve dominion over everything he made. Guarding the garden temple would have meant that Adam and Eve were to actually exercise their dominion and crush the serpent, right, for, for, for profaning the garden temple. So long as the serpent remained in the garden, Adam and Eve, they could not advance beyond probation. They were supposed to crush the serpent. Now, the presence of the serpent poses an existential question. Would Adam and Eve act in accordance with God's commands and walk in the dominion God gave them? by expelling the serpent from the garden, or would they debase themselves and be dominated by the serpent? Now, Genesis 3 holds that answer. So Genesis 3, 1b says this, the, the serpent said to Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In verses 2 to 3, Eve replies to the serpent, telling it what God commanded them, but she adds to God's command. Verses 4 to 7, um, that says this, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was there, was, um, 
was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew they, that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So this is the moment that the fall occurred, the moment that sin, death, and misery entered the world, the moment that Adam and Eve fell from the estate of innocency into the state of total depravity, right? Confirming in that moment that humanity would share in the guilt of Adam's original sin and be born in sin, shaped in iniquity, without the capacity to please God. Confirming that all of humanity in their fallen state has their hearts inclined toward evil apart from the saving work of Christ. Due to Adam and Eve's idolatry, sin of idolatry, lust, and pride, they were blinded to such a degree that they could not see that they were already like God because they were made in God's image and likeness. Sadly, it was not enough for them to reflect the one true God by being in his image and likeness. They had to be God. Instead of an elevation from the estate of innocency to glory, we observe a demotion of sorts. In Genesis 3.21, the scripture says, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. My former professor, Dr. Douglas Green, brought out this insight about the symbolic meaning of Adam and Eve's clothes, um, skin, animal skin garments. Um, and this is what he said, I'm paraphrasing, but this is what Dr. Green said. The putting on of new attire implies a change of status or change in status. Like when a man puts on a cape, we think superhero. Um, another example that is like, this is my own example, um, is that when uh, that comes to mind is when a woman puts on a bridal gown, with all the adornments, she becomes a bride, right? So in Genesis 3.21, Adam and Eve, now this is Dr. Green here, the previously glorious humans have had a change in status. They are now more like the animals they are supposed to rule over than they are like God, end quote. And so you've heard it said that sin is what makes us truly human. But no, that's not true, y'all. That's not true. Sin is actually what dehumanizes us always and at every point. As wicked as sin is, regardless of how it manifests itself, sin does not remove the image of God within humanity, within us, and that's good news. So however sin can it, and does mar the image of God within us. So when we reflect on the Im image of God, Imago Dei, the dominion God gave Adam and Eve, the communion um, uh, God, they enjoyed with God, we ought to see how particularly heinous the fall was. It was a cataclysmic fall. And so let's talk about what the impact is, right? What, what is the impact of the sin? So uh, according to Romans 5.12, this is the impact. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. The impact of Adam's sin was immediate, it was comprehensive and cosmological, okay? Uh, uh, global warming has entered the group chat. When we say cosmological, I'm talking about this has impacted the world. Uh, so, so much so that Adam went from belting out poetic praise of Eve in Genesis 2.23 saying, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man, right? To jump into Genesis 3.12, when God is asking Adam, uh, did you eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden I told you not to eat of? And he, and he begins, he answers God by blame shifting, showing resentment toward God. Um, it's a strife riddled response to God. Um, and he says, this is what he said, the woman you put here with me, 
she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate it. So that's a big, that's a big leap from 223, Genesis 223, when he was praising her to now blaming her, right? That's the nature of sin. Uh, and that's what it does to us. The rest of Genesis 3, it gives an account of sin's impact on us in the world. So here are a few. Adam and Eve, having um, become aware of their sin, they realized that they were naked, they were ashamed, and so they hid from God, which demonstrates a broken fellowship, humanity and God, um, between humanity and God, and it punctuates when God banished, it was punctuated when God banished Adam and Eve from the garden. There is strife and stratification between human beings in the form of race, racism, and white supremacy. There's diseases that ravage the body, cancer, we know this also because we are in a global pandemic that has claimed the lives of over 125,000 Americans from the coronavirus alone. And that is going to continue to climb according to the experts. It is the reason why this workshop is happening virtually and not at Renaissance Church in Harlem, New York. Uh, we live in a fallen world, y'all. So speaking of strife, uh, let's talk a little bit about race and racism and white supremacy. Um, but let me define some terms. So race is a social construct that has no basis in science. It is organized based on phenotypic difference, right? What you can see on a, on a person. Phenotypic difference, which is rooted in scientific racism, which is pseudoscience used to justify racial hierarchies. Okay, that's what scientific racism is. And it is based on social stratification. Okay, racism is when one group of people is prejudiced and has a structural power and institutional power to discriminate, um, to discriminate against another group based on their race or ethnicity, okay? White supremacy is the false and racist ideology that holds that white people are superior to every other race. This ideology can be held consciously or subconsciously and it permeates systems, institutions like the church uh, and uh, the government, you know, any, the policing uh, and policies, okay? So policies meaning laws, um, prejudice, when a person has a negative or positive opinion or perspective on another person or group of people of a different race or ethnicity based on stereotypes. Now, prejudice is usually negative, you know, but there can be a positive bias towards somebody, but it's usually based on a negative um, predisposition or opinion about somebody that's based on another group of people um, of a different uh, race or background based on stereotypes, typically. Uh, ethnicity, it's a common group of people that have a shared heritage, shared location, language, culture, and religion, all right? So I think uh, Pastor Jordan, he's put that in the chat so you guys can see those um, definitions in there. Uh, it's because of the sin of racism and white supremacy that we have to continually say, state the obvious truth that Black Lives Matter. Okay, it's because of that sin that we have, that's such an obvious truth. It should be just so obvious and so plain that it's just ridiculous that we have to say it. But because of racism, because of white supremacy, because of uh, bigotry, uh, we have to say it. Uh, when Adam sinned against God by eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, his disobedience brought forth sin, death, and misery to this world and to every human being because he is our representative. He was our representative, I should say. We got a new 
um, Adam now, thank God. Um, sin, um, sin has permeated our entire being and it, it is the root of racism, white supremacy and prejudice, which has subjugated black people for centuries in this country and around the globe. So black lives matters, um, matter to God because we are made in his image and likeness, period. We derive our humanity, dignity, and significance from the triune God. There's no qualifications, there's no equivocations, black lives matter, but no, no black lives matter, period, okay? Um, we should not be killed for, simply for being black. Now, Herman, Herman Bobbing offers some great insight with regard to the Imago Dei. And he says this, the whole being therefore, and not something in man, but man himself is the image of God. A human being does not bear or have the image of God. He or she is the image of God, end quote. This observation has significant implications because the image of God as reflected in our embodied blackness has been attacked for centuries. It is the refusal of those in power to see the image of God expressed in the aforementioned ways, but, um, uh, but particularly with regard to our skin color that has caused anti-black oppression in this country, really and around the globe to be quite honest, but I'm not talking about Pan-Africanism today, so I'm gonna keep on moving. Okay, so thankfully, this is not how the story ends because God graciously gave us a promise, a very gracious promise in Genesis 3, 14 to 15, even in the midst of that time, right there in the garden, God gave a promise, right? And this is what God said. The Lord, said, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. End quote. That's from Genesis 3, 14 to 15. So this is the gospel in seed form. It is a preview of what was to come. God promised to send his son, Jesus Christ, who lived in perfect obedience um, through his life, his death, burial, and resurrection. This has practical implications for those of us who dare to declare that Black Lives Matter. Because in the New Testament, the advent of Christ, or the arrival of Christ, that's what that word means, of Christ, it brings into view the arrival of the kingdom of God. Okay, and the, king, the kingdom of God was consistently preached by Jesus during his earthly ministry. Uh, you can see a prime example of that in Matthew 5, okay? Um, the kingdom of God is connected with the idea of inheritance as future. However, the kingdom of God is not only future, it is present. That's really important to understand. Uh, when, we, when you hear about the kingdom of God, it often talks like in Colossians 1, 13 to 14, it says, he, God has delivered us. He has delivered us from the domain of uh, darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then you'll see in Romans 14, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Don't y'all need joy? I need joy. We need joy. We need peace. But it's like we just can't not seem to get peace right about now. And that's what, those are the fruits of the kingdom, right? That, that are coming forth. That's what accompanies the kingdom of God. So righteousness and Christ's teachings is always in reference to the kingdom. And it's important to understand that justice and righteousness cannot be divorced from one another. This is important. So um, in the Hebrew, uh, the word for uh, justice uh, is actually, well, I don't, I'm not going to pronounce this probably perfect. It's been a while, but um, sadaka, 
okay? Which means righteousness and justice. So the word for justice and righteousness is literally the same word. Herman Bavink recognizes this connection when he said that, and this is, I'm quoting him, righteousness in the Old Testament was viewed as the most important task of people and the strongest proof of righteousness for them. Okay, it was to the, the strongest proof of righteousness for them was to protect the oppressed and to save the wretched from the injustice and persecution to which they were exposed. This is that in which the righteousness of God consisted. And therefore, this defense of the rights of the oppressed also had to be the primary task of the judges and kings of the earth. Okay, in our context, that would look like politicians and actual judges as well actual presidents. Uh, our God is a God of justice. It belongs to him and he is the judge of all the earth. And if we fail, if we fail to see the inextricable link between justice and righteousness, we will fail to make justice a practical reality in our lives and in the lives of others. Injustice is an attack on the Imago Dei, on the image of God, which is an attack on God. Therefore, when we pursue justice, we are upholding the image of God in our neighbor and bringing glory to our just God. So we are living currently, um, I talked about how the kingdom of God, you know, is uh, future, but it's also present. This is what we will call uh, inaugurated eschatology. It's also known as the already and not yet. Um, and so that's what we're living in. We're living in the tension of two-age eschatology in the already and not yet, meaning that the present evil age, this is the age that was brought on by the fall because of Adam's sin, right, um, in the garden. Uh, this is the present evil age. And this age is marked by sin. It's marked by death. It's marked by misery and all of its consequences. But then because the second Adam, Jesus Christ, came, right, and came to clean up and exceed what Adam did, uh, we, that brought in, Christ's arrival brought in the new age, okay? So that new age is the final order, and it's marked by righteousness, perfection, peace, joy, eternal life, new creation, love, um, and the kingdom of God. So many blessings that come along with the new age. And so we live in this tension between the present evil age and the new age. So as long as believers, as long as we have breath in our bodies, and even if you're not a believer, as long as we have breath in our bodies, you, you have an opportunity to come to Christ as well. So I do hope you, you um, accept that as well. You know, that's a free invitation. Whenever I'm speaking, I'm going to offer Christ. And so as long as believers have breath in their body and unbelievers, um, and Christ hasn't yet returned, uh, but particularly believers, as Christ's representatives in this world, we are new creations who live in the new age as well as the present evil age. And we're to bring the blessings of the new age, right? Because we're, we're co-heirs with Christ, because we're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Do I have a Bible reader up in here? Uh, who live in new, new age as well as the present evil age. We are to bring the blessings of the new age to bear in the present, okay? And so the blessings of righteousness, joy, peace, justice, and power that corrects oppression um, ought to manifest itself in our actions, in our engagement with the Black Lives Matter movement or anti-racist movement or however you're wanting to 
you know, I'll label this current uprising. Um, as we seek to live out the gospel in our respective communities and our spheres of influence. So we are called to correct oppression and expose wicked deeds done in the dark and bring them to the light. One, um, one way we can do that is through anti-racism. So racism is not only a sociological issue. I actually think primarily it is a theological issue because it is sin, right? So to be a racist who perpetuates white supremacy explicitly or implicitly is to call those who God said are very good, is for you to actually call them very bad. It is a sin against God, your black neighbor, and it is to call God a liar. It's to say, no, God, what you made was not good. What you, what you made was subpar. How are you going to lie on God? How are you going to call God a liar? That's real bold. That's really bold. So this sin, it continues to kill my people, our people on a daily basis. And as a Christian, we are called to resist sin within ourselves. The sins uh, we are, uh, and the systems, okay? So resist sin within ourselves. I'm just talking about sin, you know, um, generally. Um, but also the sin of racism, when it crops up, and let me say this, black people can't be racist because there is a power, you know, we don't have the power in the aggregate to oppress other minorities or even um, white people. So there's no reverse racism here, okay? So I, I do want to say that. Now, um, we are called to re resist sin as it shows up within us, right? Whatever judgment, um, gossip, sexual immorality, we're supposed to confess those things, repent, and turn. Um, but we are also called to resist the sins in the systems that we are a part of, in the culture around us, and in the world. So as a Christian anti-racist, my approach is slightly different than a non-Christian um, anti-racist because a non-Christian anti-racist, their presupposition is that it is systems that are bad and corrupt, not people. That's what a non-Christian anti-racist would say. Um, people are not bad. It is the systems that are bad, is what a non-Christian anti-racist would say. Whereas me, as a Christian anti-racist, I would say, I do say that the systems are bad and corrupt because sinful people work in systems, institutions, and legislate laws that systematically discriminate and dis disadvantage other groups because of their race. Okay, so I'm I'm like yes, and let me let me uh, put a little you know a little something on top of that. So it, it's so for me, it's not just the systems. I agree, but it's also the actors behind the system. It's the sinful actors behind that system that work to actually um, corrupt that. And corrupt the systems and corrupt the laws and corrupt the government and you know you go you name corrupt the church um institutions so my primary function as a christian anti-racist is truth truth telling in order to expose one of the greatest and deadliest myths uh, which is white supremacy one of it ain't the only one okay uh but it's a deadly myth uh, and uh, we have to expose this myth of white, white supremacy, the, the racist ideology, which is the racist ideology that holds that white people are superior to people of color, especially black people, right? So let me uh, read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. Uh, let me go ahead and read that. Okay, I'm reading for the NIV. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. 
Oh, goodness. So we know, let me just pause. We know that there are a great number of teachers out there that are spewing white supremacist doctrine from the pulpit, um, anti-black uh, um, rhetoric, right? Which, which, which is violence, uh, which, which actually promotes violence from the pulpit, right? Um, blame shifting, uh, uh, um, treating our blackness as if it's a weapon and saying that we deserved, right? to be killed or justifying um, the killings uh, to some degree from the pulpit. We hear it all the time when they say, oh, just preach the gospel and that's it. As if the gospel is some magic charm, you know? Uh, you hear it all the time or you hear it, you hear it um, even, in, uh, um, even in, in, in the theology that, uh, that whitewashes that whitewashes the faith. The Christian faith is an Eastern religion. So you hear that rhetoric, that rhetoric um, saying that there, uh, there's no African theologians and, and people uh, dismissing, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Literally dismissing the ethnicity of, uh, uh, of not, not only just the prophets, you know, in the Bible says something, somebody like Moses, um, but you just see, you see it all throughout the pulpits. I don't got to name these, these pastors, you already know. You, it ain't hard to tell who are the ones that are preaching white supremacist doctrine from the pulpit, okay? Um, and some of these people have attacked me, um, but that's fine, whatever. Um, now, let's see. That was, let's see, okay, so they gather around them, a great number, great number, it's not just one. You're talking about there, there's a gang of them, a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear, to hear what they want to hear on YouTube, to hear what they want to hear on Godify, to hear what they want to hear on T CBN, TBN. They gather them around. And so, so they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Okay, so it's interesting that the Bible does not say, uh, they just happen to fall into myths. Um, they organically become, you know, uh, get into myths. They, uh, it happens by osmosis. No, it says turn, okay? And to turn means that there is a deliberate effort, a deliberate choice to turn away from the truth of God's word God's word in the gospel to believe myths instead. And what are myths? Myths are a widely held, but yet false beliefs. Okay. So myths are widely held. Like a lot of people, you know, believe in them. Yet it's a false belief. Okay. So white supremacy is a pagan myth that sets itself up against the truth which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Truth is a person. Okay, so you know how, you know how myths live on? Do you know how they live on? They live on a couple of ways. But one way is through man-made idols. It's through idols made by hands, right? Graven images like Confederate statues, which are being toppled all over this country, all over the globe. Well, over the globe, they're toppling um, statues of those who uh, um, um, slave owners um uh so but same you know same difference same family um so that that is one way that idols or i'm sorry myths continue to live on right so it's 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 um it's these graven images um of confederate statues right of slave owners which are being toppled all around the country praise the lord uh the mississippi flag coming down today thank god 
praise the Lord for that. My God. Uh, those statues, they contribute to myth-making. But the one of the greatest idols that ain't been toppled yet, one of them, the, one of the greatest idols of all, well, of them all, let me just say, let me not try to put doves on, but for real, this is one of the greatest idols of them all um, is white Jesus. White Jesus is violent. White Jesus is a weapon. It is a false god. And it will be cast into the pit of hell along with every other idol. White Jesus has been used to justify the transatlantic slave trade. It's been used to justify chattel slavery. It's been used to justify Jim Crow. It's been used to, uh, 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 for uh, it's, it's, yeah, Jim Crow segregation, even in neighborhoods, right? Um, uh, colonization, neo-colonialism that's happening also. Um, and indifference, white indifference to black suffering. That's just, that's just a few. That's not even, I haven't even detailed all of the horrors that even occurred with chattel slavery because I'm trying not to traumatize us in this moment because we're already traumatized, okay? So black people and non-black people of color, I will say this, have got to resist this myth as well, this myth, this myth of white supremacy as well, because it can and is often internalized, right? Due to the ubiquity, the ubiquitous nature of white supremacy and racism, it is in everything, it is everywhere we turn, where we see that um, white people are the norm, the norm, they're the standard, that's the assumption, right? That they're the ones that are in power. You go into the store, you assume that the, the, the manager, the owner is a white person, right? Because that's what you see. That's what you see projected to you on TV. That's what you see in reality. And it's interesting that you see a lot of these organizations, some of these CEOs, some of these people in the top are starting to be toppled down because of their racism, right? And so, uh, so we have to resist this myth as well because it's internalized um, and, and it manifests for us in so many different ways. One of the ways is um, uh, uh, colorism, that's an example of the way that, that, it, uh, that it manifests for, our, for us. Um, and colorism happens not just with black folks, but other uh, people, um, non-black people of color as well. So, uh, so that's the call of the Christian. So the call of the Christian really is, uh, of the Christian anti-racist is to tell the little t truth uh, in submission to the one who is big T truth, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Truth divides, it shines the light on darkness, it di disrupts systems, and it breaks down systems in order to rebuild. Uh, so there are a couple of other ways, other technical approaches, you know, to anti-racism. I mean, just briefly, I'll, I'll just share uh, just, you know, something brief, but but one of the, well, I would say, let me just say like three. So when you're wanting to be an anti-race or do anti-racism work it, it involves a lot of different um elements or approaches uh obviously truth telling is one um you want to account for the power uh distribution among the dominant group you know, um within the organization and how that power is used to disempower those who are not a part of the dominant group so the the group that's maybe considered the minority. I really don't like subdominant. I just don't like that term. But um, so you want to account for the power distribution of people in the dominant group, 
um, and the ways that uh, the people that are not in the dominant group are disempowered. Uh, then you also want to uh, assess the systems that continue to feed the power hoarding, or, or to, yeah, to feed that the cycle of power hoarding among the dominant group. Okay, um, and then lastly, you also want to. Um, assess the structures that reify white supremacy, that could keep the ide ideology of white supremacy um, or, or concretize that ideology, right, among the dominant groups. So what are the structures, what are the systems that continue, you know, to reify uh, that uh, myth in the minds, you know, of, of uh, the dominant group? So that's just some of the, you know, really real overview of like what you will want to do like as a anti-racist i and let me also say this because i do i know i'm sorry jordan i feel like i'm going a little longer than i intended but he, i do want to say this because as a christian anti-racist um i you know I, I grew up in you don't notice i grew up in california and some people ask me oh you know how did you become an anti-racist or whatnot i honestly i didn't seek to be an anti-racist, to be quite honest, I just have always hated racism ever since I was little. And so I say that it, uh, anti-racism, I didn't choose it. It was, anti-racism was born in me. Because um, I, I grew up in California. California is racist. It is so racist, that state. Like, and I, I know conservative racism. I know liberal racism. They sometimes come together and collide and work in tandem um, uh, to oppress and to bind. Um, and so that's just something that I've uh, always, I've, I've come to resist ever since I was a young girl um, growing up in California. And so I feel like I didn't really have a choice. Um, uh, if I was going to survive, I had to really learn how to resist racism and what that looked like um, and how it was forming me and shaping me and how it was being internalized within me in the way that I saw myself. So, uh, so I said it was born in me. And then the Lord, of course, came in and you know, save me. And, you know, and then he just started to use me in this uh, sphere. And so I see it as a prophetic calling. Um, we are as believers and, and, and those who may, are not believers, let me explain something that when we come to faith in Christ, uh, we have, there's a threefold office that we, uh, uh, that we obtain inherit as, as uh, God's children. We are prophets, you know, so a prophet speaks um, God's word to the people, right? And then we are priests. And so we intercede um, on behalf of the people, um, the saints in the church and saints outside the church. Uh, we intercede, you know, to God, we pray, right? For the salvation, we pray for um, uh, uh, justice to be done. We pray uh, for um, unbalanced scales to be balanced. Um, and then as kings, so as kings, we exercise authority um, and dominion. Uh, based on the authority and the dominion that God gives us, right, in this tension, right, in this in new age and in the present age, you know. You know. Um, and so that's what we do as believers. That's the power that we are given. And so when, when somebody, so when you're talking about anti-racism, that's prophetic work. You have to tell the truth. And you're, and people don't like prophets. I don't know if you know this, but if you read your Bible, you'll see people don't like the prophets. People do not like prophets because they knew that the prophets were going to come and tell the truth. Well, true prophet is going to come and tell the truth. They're not going to tell you what you want to hear. And so, uh, so this is not, this is not something that I trifle with, uh, uh, because it costs me actually a lot to do this. It's just what God has called me to do though. Um, uh, and so, uh, 
so yeah, so I say all that to say that there's a real um, a calling to this and there's a real, real weight to it. And so I wouldn't be able to discharge my ministry and do the work of an, of an evangelist as, um, as the scripture says in Second Timothy 4, there was reading, it says, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of uh, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. I wouldn't be able to do that um, if I was uh, not living a life of integrity. Like you have, you have got to be one that is telling the truth, not only about the systems, because that's that's the easy thing. To to be honest, is to is to be able to point out the sins and systems and the, who ain't doing right and who's racist. The hard thing is to tell the truth about your own sins. Okay, to God. Okay, so a lot of people will do that as a scapegoat to, to deflect from their own sins. They're going to call out all the sins over there, and then they're going to live however they want to live. But justice and righteousness have to go together. They are the same word. You cannot divorce them. You're going to be held accountable for that. You're going to have to answer to God. You know, so you have to be able to, you got to be one who is a serial confessor, serial repenter, and turning to God continually, or else you cannot be used in this work at least not prophetically, um, because these are powers and principalities. These are strongholds over this land. The blood of our people cries out. This is not a game. And so, uh, so it ain't just about voting. It ain't just about protesting. It ain't just about educating. All those things, yes. And also, we have got to do this work by the Spirit. So that was um, a segue, sorry, a tangent, but I think it's an important one. So let me talk briefly about some entry points, and then I think I'm going to be out your way. Yes. Okay. So let me talk about some entry points on how to engage um, the present moment, to engage with anti-racism, to engage as a church. Um, so entry points. So common grace is one. I'm going to talk about two entry points. And common grace is the foundation uh, for uh, of um, for engagement with the current uprisings, okay? So the doctrine of common grace holds that God has bestowed grace upon all people regardless of their, um, uh, their standing before him. So regardless of whether they're believers or not, um, God has bestowed his grace upon everybody. Uh, what is meant by grace here, though, is that it is common and it's not to be confused with saving grace, which comes through the Holy Spirit and is redemptive and saving, and, um, which saves us from our sins, right? God is gracious and God is patient and he's good uh, to all. So common grace, it restrains um, sin in individuals and in the world. Believe it or not, the world is actually not as simple as it could be. And it's really simple. It's real simple. So it could actually be worse if we didn't have common grace. Um, but God uses common grace to restrain sin in individuals and in the world so that neither exist, I mean, I'm sorry, neither exhibit the maximum degree of sinfulness to which that they are, to which they are capable of. Uh, another aspect of common grace is that through common grace, unbelievers are able to do good works in the world and make significant contributions to society on the whole. And justice is one of those good works, okay? Um, a second point of entry uh, is co-belligerence. Uh, now, this was a method of engaging with social and political issues that was created by uh, theologian Francis Schaeffer. Uh, common grace is the foundation, though, of co-belligerence. And so uh, the way that he talks about co-belligerence is that it's a, this is a, a method or a person uh, who may not 
or or may have they they may not have sufficient basis to take the right position meaning they might not be a believer but they're like ah black lives matter because that person's a human being right and so they're they're taking the right position uh uh on a, on a on an issue on a single issue and you can join with that person because you're like yeah black lives do matter genesis 1 26 to 27 we're made in god's image and as long as y'all agree on that y'all can work together to fight anti-black oppression you don't have to agree um on everything you you you're you're uh, you're because uh, that person's not a believer you're not a believer you may not go f be able to go all the way down you know the road with that person but you all can come together on this issue and i think we see that happening right now with the uprisings right we see the church getting out there and protesting um and doing demonstrations and leading demonstrations on these things so that's cold belligerence okay so what are some practical steps and then i'm gonna be out your way y'all i promise so some practical steps for the church i obviously could go out and protest obviously be safe wear your mask hand sanitizer we got a lot going on with this COVID 19. um attending school board meetings and council meetings to remove cops from schools as the school to prison pipeline is claiming our our children at a very young age. So um, maybe, I, I, I don't know, I think, uh, I, I do think what, what is related to this is you have to kind of do some political education. I think the church needs to do political education and spiritual formation, where the church begins to really learn about or own an issue, either own an issue and learn about that, read about that, read scholars, <laughs> read sociologists on this, chew the meat, spit out the bones. And the way you're gonna be able to do that is through the spiritual formation piece, right? So being able to see like, okay, this comports, this works, this is right, we should fight for this. Um, that, eh, that might be a little bit too far for us because the word says this about maybe a certain issue. Um, but, but you need to do some political education and some spiritual formation at the um, within community to be able to learn about these issues. Like say something like abolition, you know, well, you're gonna have to learn, you're gonna have to read about that to see if you're really on that on board wholesale. But you, but at the very least, you should be able to know that, uh, yeah, why do we have cops in schools? Why do we need cops in schools? Like, I don't need, I don't think you need to really study up to figure out, yeah, I we probably don't need cops there we probably need school guidance counselors <laughs> we probably need therapists we probably need nurses there right um to actually uh, take care of the the uh, immediate and the felt needs of the students um there and not and when i say school I, i'm talking about elementary up to universities as well um so uh there's a uh, canvassing for the election how about that we have we're in we're about to experience the most consequential election uh, of our lifetime. I mean, 20, 2016 was that for sure, but now it's been ratcheted up a level. So canvassing for the election, uh, that's huge. Being able to get out the vote, register people, make sure that they come out and vote, they understand the issues. That's something that the church can own and just begin to organize around right now. Um, or support organizations that do that. Black Voters Matter, uh, that, that's an organization that, that definitely tries to protect the black vote, especially against voter suppression, as we see that's happening around the country. Uh, trying to get people to do the census so that they can be counted, that's really, really, really important for us. That's how we get, that's how that's, um, the census is used to distribute funds to our communities. So that's really important for us as well. You can join uh, local justice orgs uh, if you, if you want, or you can donate to them. 
like say something like a color of change you can donate which is an organization that um, i support from time to time you can donate to color of change uh donate to the gofundmes of the families of uh, uh of the victims of police violence right um make calls send emails to politicians to get justice for the slain right send out emails for elijah mcclain send out emails for brianna taylor we have to get um we have to continue to fight and mobilize uh for them so those are just a few practical steps these are just a few suggestions on how to begin and engage the current black lives matter movement um as always i mean my goal is to provide a framework for engagement so that you can prayerfully discern how you can get involved the urgency of the moment and the tyranny of the present demands that the church awakens and engages this moment so thank you all so much for your time thank you for your patience uh it went a little bit longer than i intended but i i do hope it you were able to take away something from it. So turn it to you, Pastor Jordan. <laughs> well, let me speak for everybody and say this was wonderful. Uh, the scripture in Luke 24, where, they, where the two men on the road to Emmaus said, did not our hearts burn? I am on fire right now. Mm -hmm. I, I almost ran out of my apartment and just took a couple laps up and down the stairs. I wonder where you went. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to just go and just run. Uh, uh, we're going to have notes and some some stuff from what we just shared all right so all right so we are all back in the room um again if you if you haven't um yet submitted a question that you wanted to ask uh you can put that in the chat right now and the company is going to start at, at answering some questions that uh we felt like had a good uh need for response and then continue to submit those questions so it's all you all right. So um, thank y'all for hanging in there and listening uh, to the, the message. Uh, and I hope you guys had a lively discussion in your breakout room. So the first question I see here, which I think is an important one, is how do you personally um, balance caring for yourself slash heal while also constantly fighting with in the movement? Great question. Um, I think I told Jordan, I was like, I kind of feel like I'm building a plane as I fly. No, but um, honestly, anti-racism work is just hard. It's really taxing. Um, and so I get into all types of, I, I get moments or times where um, the work is just very intense and really um, intensifies. This is one of those times. Um, I've had times before, if you follow my ministry, there's other times. Um, where people have a visceral response to what I say. And so there's a lot of heat, you know, on me. Um, at those times, I've learned, well, one thing that I do, one discipline that I have is that I, um, I try to pray constantly. And so I try to, I try to maintain my prayer habit of praying daily, seeking the Lord, reading the word. That's really, really important for me, um, in order to anchor me, in order to, uh, honestly give all of my, my hurts, my thoughts, my cares, I give that over to the Lord. Um, part of what it means for me uh, to heal and to maintain and take care of myself is working out. I do work out. I'm trying to be practical here, y'all. So I work out uh, five times a week. That's really, really helpful. Um, yeah, that was uh, Maureen's question. Hey, hey, girl. Um, so, so, I, I, so I work out five times a week. Um, I pray, read the word. Um, I will, uh, group chats are a lifesaver. <laughs> so talking to friends, um, 
also trying to monitor my uh, intake of news, which is hard for me to do um, because I like to be in the know. And if I'm honest, since I, we're going to confess some things, um, control, right? I like to be in control. And so I feel like by knowing what's happening, I, I get a sense, I a pseudo sense of control. I ain't got no control, okay? But but in my mind, I feel like I have some control because I have a handle. I know what's happening. So I, I almost feel like I can brace myself for the worst. It's not the way life works, but but so I have to constantly be like, all right, that's enough news. You already watched that, that news cycle. You already know what they're going to talk about in the next segment. Like I have to really cut it off or uh, I can't read those articles today. I'll read it tomorrow. Or if something happens like maybe the night before and I know it's going to be traumatic. I'm like, okay, I will look at that the next day. Um, but it can just be hard. You know, um, it can just be hard. I, I, I don't do it perfectly. I don't get it right um, all the time. Uh, but trying to um, be disciplined with my boundaries. So my weekends are my weekends. I try not to work on my weekends. So I'm just resting, relaxing, being with family. That's what I try to do um, Friday through Sunday. Um, so I, I, I try to really set set strong boundaries um, and then make exceptions where I need to make exceptions. So normally I wouldn't be working at this time, but I am working right now because this is, um, you know, I'm, I'm serving, you know, so, so, um, so I, don't know, I hope that's helpful. Um, uh, and the other question, where was the other question? Oh, it moved because people came in and were, okay, no problem. Let me see. Other question was when to leave or when to go from a church? I'm trying to see if I can, uh, if I can see it. Oh, uh, I might have skipped it. I'm sorry. There was a question. I can't. I can't see where it is right now. But something about um, when to when you know when it's time to leave a ch or church or where to stay to make changes. Um, geez, that's a that's a tough question. I um, I I go. I was saved in the black church, and I've always been in the black church. So this is not necessarily an issue I've had to deal with to be quite honest. Um, but if you have, I mean, just in, if you address these issues with your pastor and you bring them up um, as an area of concern and she or he is not receptive, you know, to that, uh, I, that, that's a serious red flag because if you're not touching on justice issues, you're not, if you're not able to make the gospel applicable to where people are living, to the concerns that people are dealing with, then you have a truncated, then that pastor has a truncated view of the gospel. And I would actually even say that um, it's a, how can I say, it's a Gnostic gospel, right? And so it's one that's only concerned with your soul and doesn't care about your body. It don't care about how you gonna pay rent next month, which by the way, next month they're saying there's gonna be a lot of evictions, right? Because of COVID-19 and people being unemployed and things like that. So if that pastor is not able to make those connections for you, doesn't want to, is not willing to, that's probably a sign that you probably need to find another church home. Now you need to pray, ask the Holy Spirit to make it clear to you um, uh, that it's time to leave. And I, I do believe in leaving church as well now. I mean, write a letter, you know, and the reason why, you know, you're leaving, because I think, I think that's just important to be like, and these are the issues and these are the reasons why I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. And, you know, so, so I would say, um, if you, if you address these issues and this pastor's slow to come or is slow to learn, you know, or is unwilling to begin to at least read up 
on these issues so that they can learn the, the pastor's doing you a disservice and the body a disservice because that person that that pastor is not teaching the full counsel of god is not is not concerning um her or himself with uh the 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 justice um and oppression of our neighbors that is that is all throughout the scriptures you know the call of of, of the believer is to uh correct oppression um and to to uh, defend the cause of the widow uh, of the um, of the widow and the orphan so and those are the marginalized within our community so um that's something to pray about uh come, come um talk to the pastor about the pastor is hard-hearted does not want to change you need to pray ask the spirit to give you the words to write that letter and begin to look for another church that is going to preach the full counsel of god um there was a jordan was there a third there was a third question wasn't there? I, I just sent you one in uh in in the, in the chat oh okay okay let me go down i'm sorry okay huh do you okay do you often come across people who try to deflect the terms Black Lives Matter because they don't want to be associated with the BLM organization? If so, what do you say? Uh, years ago, oh yeah, you're welcome, Heidi. Uh, yes, that was your question. Um, I mean, the uh, where to stay and go. Uh, year, many, many years ago, I got that question, but I mean, I don't get that now. And honestly, I don't really entertain that question anymore because the reality is that um, if, I'm, if we're gonna be honest, the church, the fact that BLM even exists is an indictment on the church. And the reason why it's an indictment on the church is because if the church was on her job doing what she was supposed to do, she would have been, there would have never been a vacuum. There would have never been a reason to actually say Black Lives Matter. But the reason why uh, this or came in was because it had to stand in the gap. It, it, the, the, um, the founders of the organization saw that we were being killed with impunity, okay? And so they created this org and this movement against police brutality. That is the mantle that the church should have. That is that that is the church's territory. That is a mantle that the church should have been um, carrying this whole time and just did not. And so there was a vacuum. And so that's an indictment on the church, to be quite honest. And so, but because of common grace, we thank God for common grace. You know, BLM came in and is um, is um, uh, fighting, you know, against police brutality. I mean, and there is some confusion, I'll say this about the movement because um, there's movement for Black Lives and then there's Black Lives Matter and then there's all these other, you know, organizations or people that are not a part of these organizations uh, that are going out and protesting. So it's not always, so sometimes people refer to it as an anti-racist movement. Sometimes people have just been saying the uprisings, um, you know, um, more generally. And so, uh, so anyway, it's not, I don't, I don't make those distinctions because um, the church wasn't doing any, anything anyway. So I don't, I don't know that we really have any room to um, sit up here and try to be like, well, I don't want, any, I wouldn't want anybody to be confused um, about where I stand on stuff. It's like, well, just do the work, do what you're supposed to be doing, you know, and, um, and, and be, be faithful you know, uh, with what the mantle that God has given us and we have not been. Um, but I think there's there's always a chance, right, um, for us to get it right. And the Lord um, is always uh, um, sanctifying and redeeming uh, the church. And so, um, so yeah, so, so I, I don't really have that argument anymore. That was years ago, <laughs> like over five years ago with the first uprisings um, after Michael Brown. Um, was killed in Ferguson, uh, but as of late, people don't ask me um, 
about that. I think because the the, the term is so um, commonplace now that I think most people know that you're, you're talking about Black Lives Mattering. Um, and a lot of people that are activists are not necessarily a part of the organization. Um, we have uh, three minutes left. Part of our last couple of minutes, I want to pray. I want to pray over you at some point, and and join join in virtual hands to to pray over you your, for your protection, for your endurance, as a laborer, uh, as God's laborer. Um, so we want to pray for you. Uh, the last question I have is: Is there anything that you would want to just tell us or leave us with uh, about anything that you know that may or may not admit into your presentations? Anything that's on your heart um, that you want to double back on? Just anything that you'd want to leave us with? Um. I think uh, my only thing is, um, I, I think it's important. These days are dark, honestly. Um, these are dark days. And we really, we don't know what's ahead. Every day there's something new and traumatic and dramatic. Um, and I, I, so I, I, I guess I wanna, um, I, I, I would emphasize the importance of, particularly for those, are, um, those who are in the chat who maybe aren't believers, if you don't know Jesus, um, I, I just invite you and offer Christ to you, honestly, because we don't know, y'all. We are in a pandemic. Um, Everybody is not going to make it out. And I know that's um, um, scary, you know, to hear that. Um, but there's over 126,000 people that are dying. And the, now the hospitalizations are, um, people are much younger. So they're 50 years old or younger. And these people are dying, right? They're going into the hospital much sicker than back in March and April, maybe because they're waiting or delaying. And these people, they are dying, y'all. Um, and so I wouldn't want anybody to miss heaven, ultimately. I think um, our primary need is to know that we have been rescued um, from the domain of darkness, that we have been rescued um, from um, sin, death, hell, and the grave because of Jesus' sacrifice. And so I would say, take Christ. Um, and then when you take Christ, you know, now you can fight from a place of victory because we are going to win ultimately. Okay. Um, but it's going to be a struggle. Okay. We're going, we're going to take two steps forward. We're going to take two steps back. There'll be times we ain't going to be protesting for two years straight. Y'all it's not, you know, this is, this will eventually, um, this uprising will eventually die down. That's just the nature of uprisings. Right. Um, but it's about, uh, doing the work when it ain't glamorous, when it ain't cute, when it can't be Instagram. Um, but ultimately it's about knowing the Lord Jesus Christ too in the pardon of your sin and then living in light of that and doing justice because of that. Um, so I would say, take Christ, you know, take Christ. Ultimately I'm an anti-racist because I'm an evangelist because I see that white supremacy is a stumbling block and it uh, keeps people away from the gospel. You know, so I, so that honestly, that's what, that's really why I'm an anti-racist. I'm an evangelist, okay? So I can tell you my uh, my, my little incognito um, uh, um, uh, a disposition right now. It's like, gotcha, I'm an evangelist. I want you to come to Jesus, you know? So, <laughs> no, but, uh, but really, I want you to take the Lord. Um, and I also want you to tell the truth about your own sins, but also about the sins that you see in the systems and in the cultures around you and work to change those things. So both and, both and. Wow. Well, take this now as an invitation to come back and do something, anything. You tell, you tell us the time, the day, the topic, <laughs> and we in there. Thank you. 
I'm going to get I'm going to get nasty emails if you don't come back. So the, as your brother, <laughs> I love to come back. I love to come back. I didn't know our first time would be virtual. I mean, golly, I know. I, I know, know you've been wanting me to come for yeah. I don't know how long. Well, hey, the Lord did it. It's fine. <laughs> so we yeah, we're so grateful again. Um, so we'll send out an email this Friday to um, uh, hopefully have the YouTube link along with some notes for everyone and please spread that widely. But right now I want to close us in prayer over Akemeni. And if you would just bow your heads and, um, and join me in prayer over our sister. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for all that our sister has deposited in our hearts. Um, Lord, just the information, the knowledge, the passion, the rhema word, the revelation that she has given us in so many different areas. Lord, we could have spoken for an hour just on what stuck out to us the most. And we're so grateful for, for you giving us servants. So Lord, we praise you because you give us uh, you give us good gifts that have come down in the, in the form of prophets and evangelists to help us, to, to lead us. So, Lord, we pray for our sister. We pray for her protection. Lord God, we pray for her encouragement. Lord, that we, we pray for uh, her, her sensation of your nearness in her life. Lord, we pray that you would bless her uh, immensely, that you would not withhold any good thing from her, Lord, because we certainly know that in your goodness you would not do that. So, Lord, continue to be with her. God, enlarge her territory. Uh, uh, order her steps, Lord. Give her direction. In, in clarity as she continues to move forward and do this amazing uh, work that you have called her to do. God, continue to humble us, Lord, to do the work. Thank you for this servant. God, help us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. So we ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. 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 Thank you all so much. Thank you for your patience. Thanks for being in the chat. Gosh, 165 of y'all. Come on, praise the Lord. On a, uh, on a, what is it, what is this, Tuesday night? You know, days. I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's only three days. <laughs> Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Hey, okay. <laughs> so anyway, thank y'all so much. I hope it was a blessing. Um, and it's tough. Take it day by day. Some days you ain't going to feel great. You know, some days you'll feel encouraged. Thank God for that. Um, but yeah, just be gentle with yourselves too. We're, we're, we're really enduring a lot. And we're going to have to pace ourselves for the race, you know, so take your time, be gentle with yourself, take breaks if you need to, um, for real. Mm. Blessings. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see the rest of you guys online and in different virtual spaces. Love y'all. Please be safe. Continue to wear your masks and physically distance yourself. Mm. Uh, take this pandemic very seriously and, and encourage your loved ones to do the same. Thank so, you. Love y'all. See y'all online. <laughs>